Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and every body. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing. With so many fun things happening this spring, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, it's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Worst Year Ever. My name's Katie Stoll. Oh, cool. Mine's Cody Johnson. <laughs> Brad. Yeah. And you? And I also have a name. Uh, yeah. Prove it. I don't feel the need to. It's Robert Evans, guys. I feel Evans, like guys. we're a community of equals, and I don't need to prove anything to y'all. I just did it. I you just did the it. You just told everybody his name. I did. I got impatient. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I apologize. Well, well uh, yeah, it's fair. I added you on this. Now, this this podcast, if I'm not mistaken, is called The Worst Year Ever, and it it's supposed to be about uh, 2020, um, mm-hmm. but right now, there's some people in a little little corner of the world who are having, well, actually, not the worst year ever by their standards, right. but a pretty bad year pretty bad in 2019. Year. Yeah, yeah. So, welcome to the worst year currently that's happening. Just, yeah. the, just bad times. <laughs> welcome to bad times, the show. <laughs> Um, Welcome to bad times. That was an alt title pitch, but yeah, uh, yeah. So we figured we'd take a pause from going into our deep dives on candidates to talk a little bit about what's happening uh, with the Kurds and Turkey and over in Syria. And Robert, of course, has a lot of background over there. And what better person to help us sort through it all? Than Cody. And Robert's going to bite his tongue the whole time. Yeah, keep it down, Robert. I've got some notes. He's not going to let us know when we pronounce things wrong. Mm -hmm. We're just going to fumble through it. Mm -hmm. Or to Borgian. Or to Borgian. 
as per our agreement before this, I too have notes, but I'm just going to light them on fire um, and then sit quietly throughout the rest of the episode. Please do. Every ad break, another page of notes. (laughs) Well, it's difficult because all of his notes are on the computer, so he -hmm. won't be connected with us anymore. Right. The first page of notes goes up in flames and then so does his device. Yep. Oh, well. Wait, now... Skype does not work on fire. No, this it does no, not. Data. No. Oh. So we're going to troubleshoot this on the fly. It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Short episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, th- this is this is this is our, our Rojava episode. Uh, I, I, I guess there's like I have like 20 something pages of typed up notes that I took <laughs> while I was there over okay. my like. Over okay. My, not. I, I spent yeah. a week there in um, August of earlier this yeah. year in northeast Syria, um, and it's like the news always refers to it as the Kurds because I think at a certain point in the history of the Syrian civil war, all mainstream foreign journalists just gave up and were like, "Ah, let's just refer to things by the laziest possible mm-hmm. term." Um, yeah, as broadly so, as possible. So, but the SDF is like made up a bunch of different militias. Yeah, and uh, they're not uh, all uh, Kurdish. Yeah, the SDF is the Syrian Democratic Forces, mm-hmm. and they were um, – so the way – I guess a little bit of backstory is good. Back in like 2013, you know, there was a, a Kurdish political party in northeast Syria called the PYD that yeah. was initially like a hardline Marxist party, and they were doing shit like killing landlords and stuff back in the early aughts. And they kind of went a little bit more uh, – or, or a little bit less extreme as time went on, and when um, the Syrian civil war kicked off – you know, in most of the country, the regime was battling with different rebel groups. But in a lot of northeast Syria, they just kind of pulled the hell out because they they realized they couldn't hold it. And so there was this big power ba- vacuum. And the PYD, which, again, is this kind of Kurdish uh, leftist party, was one of the most organized groups in the area. And they kind of wound up taking control with a group called... Uh, the help of a group called the PKK, which is like yeah. um, a, a Turkish militant Kurdish group um, that uh, are considered to be terrorists by the United States and by yeah. Turkey, but not by a lot of other countries. Didn't they They've do some lo- big thing in the 80s and they're a big terrorist? Yeah, they've, they've done, done some atrocities. Tens of thousands yeah. of people have died. And yeah. it, it, most of them have been killed by Turkey. Um, but the, the, the PKK did a bunch of really awful stuff, too. Now, what makes the PKK complicated is that they're also the ones who saved the Yazidis when ISIS started rampaging. Okay. Like, it was, uh, they were, you know, it was the YPG and the YPJ, which is like the Syrian forces. But in the in the early days of the Civil War, they were basically just PKK. That's no longer true, but like... See, this is this is really complicated. Is. There's a lot of fucking acronyms and a lot of different groups. Um, what's important to understand is that what started out as a group of very, very um, ideological militants, most of whom have been fighting for decades against primarily Turkey, saw the oper- the rise of ISIS and the collapse of order in their chunk of Syria as an opportunity to, number one, finally control a sizable chunk of land of their own and not mm-hmm. just be hiding in the mountains of Turkey fighting right. as guerrillas. But number two, institute some of these radical political ideas that they had. They, the guy who founded the PKK is a dude named Abdullah Ajalan, and he was a hardcore terrorist, and he's been trapped alone on an island prison for the last 20 years or so. Um, and he's published a bunch of books by sending them out as legal briefs to his lawyers, who then published them as works of political theory. And he basically spent a bunch of time in prison reading about 
history and became like like ancient history, like 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 Paleolithic, mm-hmm. Neolithic human history, and became convinced that like where everything had gone wrong was the beginning of agriculture when men started to dominate women, and we went from being a matriarchal society to a patriarchal society. So Ajalon's idea was that. Okay, fuck it. I was, you know, I was, I was wrong in the past to try to like want to institute a Marxist state or or whatever. I, we like that's why all these revolutions in the Middle East keep failing is we just keep putting in new strongmen leaders who do terrible shitty things. And instead, we should seek to reform the primary imbalance in our society, which is the the domination of women by men. So that's like the underlying ideology that these groups who wind up in charge in Northeast Syria have in like 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, So they just start kind of building a government um, and using a lot of principles that they cribbed from an American anarchist thinker named Murray Bookchin. It's like focused around communes, like local communes, like every neighborhood will have, you know, everyone will get together and vote on issues that deal with them immediately. And then they'll elect representatives to represent them for like, you know, at the city level and so on and so on and so forth. Um, And every elected position, they elect a man and a woman. Um, That's one of like the core ideas behind it is you you never have like one person elected to do a job like that because that's kind of a it's both a seed of authoritarianism and it sort of guarantees I had a. Someone explained to me when I was uh, in a meeting with a couple of Kurdish military leaders, um, uh, the the co-presidents of security for Raqqa, the former capital of the Islamic State, that um, their understanding was that if you just had – it really pissed off the coalition having to deal with like two elected leaders because – coalition forces used to a very linear sort of um, chain of command, and it's not as much with the the SDF. Um, And they were like, but if you have one leader, just because of the history of the region, it's going to be a man, and then you're going to wind up reinforcing all of these things. So So within the SDF, you mean there's these two elected positions? Within all aspects of society. So the SDF is the military force. Um, and it's, you know, the Kurds are, are who's best known. And at one point they were, you know, more than 70% of the effort. Um, and actually a lot of Rojava now, it's majority Arabic fighters in the mm-hmm. YPG and the YPJ. And again, this is all, so the SDF is the a broad umbrella organization. And there's a number of different militias within it. The YPG and the YPJ are the largest, but there's, you know, a, a lot of the fighters are Arabic. We saw Armenian fighters, Assyrian fighters, Syriac fighters, Turkmen fighters, so it's it's a very it's basically a collection. What, what you had in Rojava was all these different minority groups who'd been traditionally oppressed in Syria and the region um, wound up as the only power in the area. And because they were fighting ISIS, the U.S. started shipping them huge amounts of, of weaponry and military right. training. And they kind of nailed it um, to the extent that it's you, you talk to U.S., soldiers about it, special forces guys, you talk to or you read interviews with some of these guys who are like colonel and higher level. And they always seem kind of shocked at how well the cooperation went. Yeah. Um, there were no insider attacks, which is something you, you look in Afghanistan, right? And it's it's a constant series of U.S. and other Western military and political officials getting murdered um, as a result of somebody sneaking their way into the Afghan security apparatus and carrying out an attack, right? That doesn't happen um, in Rojava. There, people have obviously died in suicide bombings and stuff, but you've never had a guy in the SDF pull out a gun and start shooting right. at an American general, which has happened so often in Afghanistan, it's it's basically a joke, Um so it, it was a really good cooperation. They fought very well. Um, and it, it was one of those things where, as I was looking, reading the stories about this place and about the evolution of these political ideas in the region, you know, from about 2014 on, um, 
part of me was like, this sounds fucking amazing because I'm, um, I'm personally an anarchist. I'm personally someone who I, I hold a lot of the things that they were saying they were doing and trying to like reform about society are things I very much believe in. Um, the kind of dismantling of hierarchy and sort of reducing um, authoritarian impulses in government. Um, it's all very into the commune aspect of it. It's very yeah. interesting because it's not what most people I think associate mm. with, uh, you know, what's happening over there. No, and but also it's imp- it was impossible for me to know like how real is any of this shit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You one of the things that in my work in Iraq has become very clear to me is that the way things look on the surface or the way they're reported in the foreign media often has very little to do with the actual reality on the ground. And that was something I encountered a lot with the Iraqi Kurds. You know, Iraqi Kurdistan is much better than the rest of Iraq. It's a much more effective government, but it's unbelievably corrupt sure. and fucked up. And while things are better for women there than they are in a lot of the country, um, you still don't see them doing much, mm-hmm. like running things. You don't see them right. doing a lot of... Um, important work in the society, uh, not in like really public facing positions. There's a few. I have met a couple of women who were in positions of like management or government, mm-hmm. but and like the stuff about the fe- the the Kurdish female fighters in Iraq. They had a few that they would try out for the cameras during the worst part mm-hmm. of the invasion by ISIS, but once the fighting died down, those women got pushed back and and right. mainly were doing photo ops. That's not the case in Rojava. Right. Um, and it was obvious as soon as I crossed uh, the border, just in terms of how the women carried themselves, um, how they dressed, the fact that some of the first people I met who were like processing our passports and stuff and giving us our um, our passes in order to like travel through the country were women who were like just handling administrative jobs. Um, and then we started crossing we crossed the Tigris in this little pontoon bridge, which was mm-hmm. the only real way in. It was a, it was a real pain in the ass getting in because we had to get approval with the Iraqi government and everything. But as soon as we crossed over, um, you know, there's checkpoints all throughout the region, and there would just be women with machine guns at the checkpoints doing jobs like working with men. Um, it was so it, it, at first it was really kind of jarring, and there's this suspicious part of me that was like. Are they putting on a show? Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, the guy I was with, Jake, uh, is a former reporter for Vice. Tapper. He runs a site called... Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Yes, yes, Jake Tapper, <laughs> Jake Tapper. Uh, we were there mainly to talk about the time Monica Lewinsky almost fucked him. Um, oh, yeah, did he have interesting yeah, things to say? He he did, he did. This close, Good Katie. get. This, yeah. this, this close, yeah. yeah. Um, no, Jake Hanrahan, who runs a site called Popular Front, and then me, who makes podcasts for the internet. Neither of us are the kind of people you would get hundreds of folks to stage um, a series of uh, – uh, like, like it, there was a certain point at which we I had to accept this couldn't have been staged. Right, yeah. the, pad- just, the pageantry wouldn't have been for yeah. you. Right. Yeah, it's like no, no, nobody's nobody's getting thousands of people to dress up and pretend they're treating women right to like impress Robert right, Evans. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> of the podcast with a swear word in the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but hey, maybe. So, yeah, you know, hey man, hey maybe. Yeah. That would be nice. I would like to be important enough to be ga- gaslit um, yeah. to that extent. But someday, it was really, Robert. Someday. Someday you'll be gaslit yeah. by it. Entire, I, yeah. That I I hope so. Uh, I hope it's Michigan. I would love to be <laughs> gaslit by Michigan. Um, so, yeah, the first city we entered when we rolled into Rojava was this place called Derik, which um, there's a lot of fighting there right now. 
um, the Turkish army is like kind of pushing into the outskirts of city of the city, and the SDF is uh, mounting a pretty furious defense. Um, but when we were there, Derik was just like incredibly peaceful, very quiet town. The first thing I noticed is that the way that sort of cities are built in this part of Syria, they have. You know, you have rows of houses and there'll be apartment blocks on the top floors and the bottom floors will be shops. Uh-huh. And all those shops have like little metal grates that pull down in front when it's time to like close up for the night. Kind of like at a mall or something. Yeah. I've seen yeah. those. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and during the days of the Syrian regime, they would all be painted with um, Syrian like national yeah. flags, like the flag of Bashar al-Assad. Um and they'd been repainted when we were there um, in lavender with green clovers on them. And um, our, our fixer, this woman named Chabad, who showed us around the country, um, said that it had been done by the women in town because they were like, well, the regime's gone. There's no need to have these fucking flags here. Like, let's let's make it look nice. Um, and so it was a really it was a really pretty and calming place to yeah. drive into. And we met uh, a lot of journalists there, some really neat folks who had all been working in the region for a while. And they all had really different opinions on what was going on in Rojava and how revolutionary it actually was. And um, I met this um, Cyphron photojournalist named Achilles, um, who had been in Syria dozens of times, I think, like like constantly from the beginning of the war on. And Achilles, um, you know, had a lot of praise for like the fighting prowess of the YPG and the YPJ. But I think kind of this sense of doom about what was going to happen to the whole project, like, yeah. It was this matter of it can't it's not going to last like the Americans are going to pull out. And when they do, Turkey has planes and tanks. Yeah. Um, and I would say when talking to foreigners, there were two things they all agreed on. One of them was that the changes to women's rights in the region in the seven or eight years since the establishment of, of the, the autonomous region uh, was was remarkable, almost yeah. unbelievable. Um, and the second thing was that they were completely fucked. And that was that was not an uncommon. So one of my friends in Iraq who drove us up to the border um, and helped us get in. He's a very good fixer over there. Um, loves going to Rojava. Uh, would visit every Ramadan because they didn't have religion there, in his words, and so he could get wasted. Um, <laughs> and he was like, you know, it's great over there. I really like it. It's very chill. But you know, they they're. Basically, he's like, the people in charge were dumb. They weren't willing to compromise on any of the things they believed. And so their only friends are the Americans. And let me tell you, yeah. my American friend, mm. Americans are bad friends. They're not very good friends. Yeah, terrible friends. We are currently seeing all over the world, but especially there. Um, uh, yeah. I have a quick question. So I know that this week there's this power vacuum that sprung up after, you know, America – withdrawing uh and so now the sdf is teamed up with bashar al-assad and i'm seeing reports that uh the syrian forces are like now seizing up territory that they haven't had in years and that would be yeah. rojava correct so yeah, like this yeah. specifically hits me a little bit to see i guess they know that it's this was coming in the sooner or later knowing that america can't stay there forever but like especially this description you're giving us of like the shops painted with these peaceful images as opposed yeah, to the, the like nationalistic yeah. propaganda. Yeah. And so that's the area that they are now reclaiming and taking back for their own. Well, chunks of it. So chunks like one of the it. first Not areas. The whole thing. One, yeah. Yeah. One of the first things that went back to the um the regime's control was Raqqa, again, the former capital of the Islamic State, which was being managed and run by the autonomous government. Yeah. But was not really considered to be a part of Rojava. Um okay. for one thing it was a, it was yeah, it was a majority um 
Arab city. And again, like what most of what you have going on in Rojava is kind of a coalition of different these different little mi- like minority groups. So Raqqa was not a city they wanted, and it was not a friendly city. To that extent, that was probably always going to go back to the okay. um, the control of the Syrian government. Um, but yeah, they are taking other areas. It's kind of unclear to me, and I think to everyone except maybe Bashar al-Assad, what the exact extent of um, the absorption of Rojava into the, the regime is going to be. I asked a lot of people about that. Um, that was obviously the um, one of the big questions on my mind, because I think Bashar al-Assad is one of, if not the very worst war criminals of our age. Sure. And, you know, the, it, one of the things that's really controversial within sort of people who are followers of the Syrian civil war, and particularly the people who got really emotionally uh, invested in the rebel movement, is the fact that in Rojava, the forces there didn't fight the regime. They did, A little bit early on at the very start of the civil war, they, they fought alongside some of the groups like the FSA. But that that stopped pretty quickly. And... There's a lot of reasons for that, some of which are kind of beyond the scope of what I want to talk about today. Sure. But the, the gist of it is that the international community did not provide any support to yeah. – um, not really to the to, – and this is one thing that leftists get wrong a lot when they argue about like the U.S. giving weapons to jihadists. We didn't give fucking shit to the Syrian rebels. Like they barely had bullets for their guns. You talk to some dudes – um, like I, I taught when I was talking to Achilles because he was there mm-hmm. from the beginning of the war. He was friends with uh, an FSA leader a free Syrian army leader who lost, I think, five of his sons um, in the fighting against the regime and was sending his men into battle with like a dozen bullets each or something like that, like barely any ammunition, certainly not enough to get into firefights with soldiers who were equipped. And he wound up, this guy wound up joining the Islamic State. And he didn't do it because he was a hardline Islamist. He didn't do it because he wanted to establish a caliphate. He did it because he wanted bullets and he wanted to kill Bashar al-Assad's men because they'd killed his sons. And Achilles told me, like, I was asking, can I come back and embed with you guys again? And he's like, you know, I would love to have you back. um, But, you know, if my emir says I got to kill you, I got to kill you. Um, So it was like these sort of decisions, like hard decisions are made by people in hard circumstances. And it's certainly worth criticizing the fact that the – Rojava didn't really directly fight with the regime, but they had a situation where the regime didn't have any power over them. Um, uh-huh. Because of the U.S. presence in the region, the Syrian Arab uh, Air Force, there was there was no chance that Assad or Russia was going to bomb Rojava. And if they weren't going to bomb Rojava, then their only option for taking back that land would have been ground forces. And the Syrian Arab army is not a good army, not okay. even today. They only ever had air support and artillery um, and whereas the, the forces, the FDS or SDF are very good fighters. So, um, it's a situation where, because, um, they, they were able to have a really good holding pattern. They had oil, which Bashar needed. So they would sell him oil. And when he made demands or did things they didn't like, they would cut off the oil. So they had a lot of power. It was actually a pretty good situation to be in. And I asked everyone I could about Bashar al-Assad and about the Syrian government. Like, how would you feel about it taking back over? What, because that's been, uh, Assad's line the whole time is that this is going to be reabsorbed into the country. And I didn't meet a single person who wanted that to happen. Yeah. Now, it was kind of confusing because none of them wanted to be separate from Syria either. Um, A lot of them had family in other cities, cities and stuff like, so it was very complicated. People were like, the most common thing I heard is people saying, like, I just kind of want things to go on the way they have been. Yeah. This is going pretty well. Well, right, because um, their whole idea of how society should be and how 
community should be structured lends itself yeah. to that. Like, well, we want things to be the same they are here now, but we also yeah. want to be a part of Syria and have these yeah. uh, this, these relationships. Yeah, I want to be able to visit my family in Damascus and stuff. Right. And like, I don't, yeah. So it's it's a really, it was really complicated, but nobody wanted to be back under the regime's thumb. Um, now that said, there are factions within Rojava. There's like, like there are within any organization that includes millions of yeah. people. Um, so uh, my, my fixer Chabad, so whenever you're in a place like this, um, a lot of how you, you interpret the place and experience it is very heavily dependent upon your fixers, the people who lead you around and interpret for you and introduce you to this part of the world. That's a very critical thing. And it really changes how you experience it. And Chabad is, she's not an ideologue in terms of, she, she's not unreasonably sort of, uh, married to the YPG or the YPJ or or the PKK or any of these groups, but she's a fundamentally a believer in the Rojavan revolution um, and a, a very much a believer in sort of this women's liberation movement. She identified herself as an an anarchist to me in kind of our last couple of days together. But she's so she's in this interesting position of having really good relations with a lot of these people, knowing how to work with them and knowing how to get what she wanted from them, but also not being like blinded um, yeah. by ideology. And one of the things she repeatedly pointed out to me is when – because I, I asked a bunch of different men um, what they thought about all the changes to women's rights in the region. And I got a lot of different answers. And whenever somebody gave a really positive, detailed answer, she would tell me if she thought they were lying or not. Okay. And I was like, yeah. what, what makes you think they're lying? And she's like, oh, there's a lot of these guys are just fake feminists. A lot yeah. of them are just sort of – You know what? I relate to that. This is where the that. wind's blowing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We had a lot of conversations yeah. about that. Universal, it's like the guys who yeah. say the, yeah. And one of those, it was interesting because one of the guys she believed, we were out in front of this um, this women's economic development headquarters, um, which was like this this organ, this building that like women would go to if they're like, hey, I want to I wanna learn how to like do something. I've been a, 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 a you know, I, I was married at the age of like 14 and I don't have any like job skills and like I want to live independently and like, okay, well here, we'll find you some training. Like what are your interests? Wow. Like the, it, it was yeah. a place for that. So we we visit, we interview one of the women there, um, a couple of the women there, and then we, um, we're we coming out and uh, there's a guard station outside of it, right? Because we're in, the city we're in, Kamishlo, is the most dangerous city outside of Raqqa. Um, it was partly controlled still by the Syrian regime. And so you'd see like there's would be neighborhoods that would be Bashar al-Assad's picture mm-hmm. and the neighborhoods that's the YPG. So it was a little bit of a sketchy place. There were a decent number of ISIS attacks there. So th- there were guards out inside in front of this building. Two of the guards uh, were young women um, with, you know, AK-47s and uniforms and stuff. And then one of the guards was an older man in his 60s. Um, and I went up to him and I asked him a couple of questions. Um, I asked him how he felt about uh, working, you know, as, as an older man and a man who, like, wouldn't have grown up with this, how he felt seeing women with guns uh, and working alongside them. And he was like, I feel really good about it. Uh, I'm very happy to see that. Um, I'm I'm happy that they're contributing uh, to the fight. Like, we wouldn't have been able to do this without the women. Um, and I asked him if he considered himself a feminist. Um, and he thought about that for a second. And he said, I don't think there's any revolution without the women. Um, which is a line, a, a line from Abdullah Ajalan. There's no revolution without the women, or the women yeah. are the center of the revolution. And you can translate it, I think, different ways. And she believed him. There was this other guy we met, um... In Raqqa, uh, one of the co-presidents of the Defense Council, who was, I thought, very nice and very um, uh, said all of the right things, was very eloquent about his things. Um, but the way that 
his partner looked at him during a couple of lines who was <laughs> who was a woman and a very a very tough lady um like you could just see it in her eyes and the way that she directed people and then Chabad afterwards was like oh yeah that guy if if things went back to the way they were tomorrow, that guy wouldn't have any trouble. Yeah, at all. he's just um, playing essentially. it. Essentially, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. And so that's one of the things that really worries me yeah. when we talk about the regime coming back in and Russia coming back in. Is there are a lot of true believers within yeah. the Rojavan project? I met a bunch of them, people who were working very hard to to do something incredible. Um, I'm sure there's also people who have been kind of frustrated with uh, all of this women's shit. Um, and if they get an opportunity to push things in the other direction yeah. and have the backing of another power, they'll do it. Now, I, I don't think that's the majority of people involved, particularly in the government, because a lot of these people, a lot of the core of the movement are former or current members of the PKK yeah. who were struggling in the mountains for decades and very hard, strong believers in a lot of this stuff. But there's definitely factions that I think would have no issue um, going back to the way things it were. It just sounds it's, that it's tenuous yeah. enough that this kind of upset right now is yeah. it, it puts the whole thing in like great peril, the whole ideological yeah. experiment, not experiment, but you know what I mean? Like this is relatively new and yeah. it doesn't have enough roots to necessarily sustain this, survive this. Um, we need to take a real quick break for things. Oh, you know, Katie, speaking of breaks. Yeah. You know what will heal any broken bones you have? What? The products and services advertised on this show. That's an oh, FDA-backed guarantee. I should yeah. have known that's where you were going with this. Yeah, the yeah, health apps. Yeah. I've got so yep. many broken bones, so I'm excited about these products and services. Health apps. Yeah, download mattresses. Bones, or, no vowels. Yeah. Underwear. The app. Mm-hmm. Bonesal. You've heard it here, folks. Whatever products you buy from a podcast heal broken bones. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. Welcome to the worst year ever. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrict Supply NMLS 292230 Equal housing lender Federally insured by NCUA Mom met a lot of your demands over the years This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker That makes premium cocktails on demand In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails All at the touch of a button Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now When you buy one pack of cocktail capsules So, for all the times you made a mess Get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails Without making any mess at all For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. 
Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Look, my bones are all healed and that's great news for me. Yeah. And we're back for more talking about stuff and less talking about bones and le- yeah um there's probably still some talking of bones to come i'm waiting uh, for I'm that i'm excited yeah. about that yeah i assume that there's uh, yeah, more I'm, bone talk yeah yeah there there's going to be more bone talk welcome to bone talk welcome to bone talk so i want to talk a little bit about the women's economic development headquarters Great. um so that, this is a place we went to on our second day there and it was um really remarkable spot um for one thing it was uh, by far the cleanest place that we went into uh, up to that point because we'd mainly been staying in like hotels and stuff for journalists. And I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, journalists are filthy degenerates. I did um, know that. Yeah, familiar. Yeah, I've heard. Actually, the hotel we stayed in in Durique was lovely, but I, I, I was yeah. just anyway, filled anyway. with filthy. So it's a very nice room. Mm. Yeah, filled with filthy degenerates. Um, so. The, the the walls of this place and the walls of most of sort of the administrative buildings in Rojava were covered in pictures of martyrs, um, yeah. the Shahids, which is like a a, a, a word from martyr. Um, and uh, in, in this case, it was the picture of a bunch of different female martyrs, including um, a, a young woman who blew herself up destroying an ISIS tank during the battle for Kobani. So you see a lot of the same faces um, in a lot of these walls, and in this, it was the faces of all a lot of the young women who had died mm-hmm. fighting, and it was um, it was a really good constant reminder of just like among other things, like the cost of the fighting against yeah. ISIS. They lost about eleven thousand people. Wow, um, fight, and a lot of them were very, very young. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you looked at the age on the gravestones, and I think seventeen was a pretty wow. common age, um, and some people who were younger. Yeah. Um, so it's it it, 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 it. Another picture you'll see you saw all over the place, and I saw on the wall this building is the picture of Abdullah Ajalan. They call him Apo, which I think means uncle, like A P O, mm-hmm. is um kind of the nickname for him. And there, he's taken very seriously. There's a mix. Some people he's revered almost as like a, a deified. Um, and and there are there is some like concerning sort of like leader worship that I saw among sort of segments there, right? And especially in the context more of just, what they're doing, like yeah, yeah. And it it kind of did strike me that they're ac- he's accidentally in the best situation possible for them because I think it's it's arguable that in some situations you do need a figurehead like that for people to rally behind. And especially just sort of given some cultural nuances of that area, that's very common. Every movement has their kind of strong male figurehead and they have that, but he's also locked in an Island prison thousands of miles away. So he can't actually do anything. (laughs) It was kind of perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you would see the pictures of him are kind of hilarious because they're all at some point before he got arrested. This guy just had thousands of pictures taken of him. And in some of them, it's like the normal militant thing where he'll have like he'll be in fatigues or whatnot, directing mm-hmm. troops. But most of them, he's wearing like Cosby sweaters and like there's one where he's literally he's got his head in his hands like this and he's smiling. And it looks like it looks like your 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 chubby uncle in a Cosby when sweater. Was he, <laughs> when was he arrested? I think it was 1998. Okay, uh, it was so around the yeah. turn of the um the century. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. That kind of like yeah. mall yeah. glamour uh, pick. Yeah, it was. There's really weird. You would see some really strange ones. <laughs> it was a lot to like keep from giggling at a couple of points. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, so we go into this room and we there are these pictures all over the walls. And I sit down and I talk to this woman who's um, – she was an older lady, the head of the Economic Development Council. And from the mountains is the term that everyone used for the, the Kurds who were part of the movement who had clearly – been part of the PKK before, mm-hmm. like the mountains of Turkey is what they're in Iraq or what they're referring to. So like that was the term that would be like whispered whenever we'd meet somebody. And they were usually the people who would be very, very stern, very hard eyes, um, very taciturn and kind of less like f- friendly and smiley. Um, and, you know, someone would whisper at some point, I think he's from the mountains. Or I think she's from the mountains. It was, it was just kind of a thing over there. So we meet this woman. We're sitting, we're talking with her. Um, and she explains to us in a lot of detail about, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to read from my notes actually okay. here. Um, so she's talked to us about the struggle against patriarchy, which yeah. she saw as much more difficult and dangerous than the struggle they'd fought against ISIS. Um, one of the lines that really stuck out to me was, um, it is always poor women, those with no solution who come here. So these are the, the women who yeah. are like coming in for help from this place. She told us about a deaf woman who'd come by recently who was the widow of a martyr. Um, and her parents had wanted to take the kids she'd had with her dead husband because they didn't believe she could take care of them and she had no income to do so. And so one of the things the center had done recently was put this woman in training, um, for a job as a seamstress and she'd been able to get work and like keep her children and like maintain her family. So that's like an example of the sort of work they were doing. I love that. Yeah. Um, One of the lines she said that really stuck out to me was, if you fall into the mentality of capitalism, you are already a martyr. She didn't bring up Sheryl Sandberg's lean in, um, but that's what she was referring to is uh, we don't, our goal with this place isn't to make women into like entrepreneurs so that they can create giant businesses and get rich. Our goal is to help women who have been marginalized to the sidelines of our society take roles in the center of our society. Yeah. And it's it's not about making money. Our goal isn't for her to like create a sewing app or whatever. Right, it's not our like more is, female yeah. CEOs. Able to, exactly, exactly. It's able to be like self-sustainable to live a life and yeah. you know, not need to be in fear and all that. Yeah, she said, another thing she said was Western women, uh, they work but receive less, uh, which I think she she was referring to the pay gap there, uh, because they work in the mentality of the men. If I am free here, I can only be as free as the other women here. Um, Mm -hmm. So is this understanding that like if our equality is based on us acting like men, that's not real equality. That was the attitude she expressed to me. And her, you know, I she's one of the people I asked if she wanted regime control of the area to to return, um, and she had a very hard line on that. Um, she said that she did not want, we do not want to be a state was her line. Um, so she did not want reintegration of the Syrian government. She didn't want statehood at all. Um, the term she used and that most people would use was uh, autonomous. Yeah, you know, we yeah. want to remain autonomous. That's what's important to us. So yeah, that was a really interesting interview to me and I've got more like one of the things that yeah I have a a whole long recorded interview with her that I'm in the process of getting translated unfortunately my translators are all based in Rojava uh and so some of them have been getting uh shelled by the Turks uh recently so it's it might it's gonna (laughs) uh, part of why we're doing some of this today is it's going to take a bit longer for me to get this series out because uh that's not the ideal situation yeah so another place we went to was Jinwar. Jin is the um, Kermaji, Kurdish word for women, um, and war means land. Um, and so women's land. It's a village, an all-women village um, that's located in Rojava, not that far from Kamishlo. 
Um, and it was it was pretty small when we went there. I think there were about a dozen or so families. Um, but it was only around a year old, and it was, it was really beautiful for one thing. Um, lavender painted walls again, which I, 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 I started to recognize as a bit of a theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very orderly, spacious homes built around all very eco-friendly. So one of the things in the Rojavan Constitution was um, a focus on ecology. Um, because the, the American anarchist who is really influential to their thinking, a guy named Murray Bookchin, was like one of the very first people back in the 60s who was like, climate change is going to be a problem. So that's a big part of the ideology, at least. Um, it's the it's the aspect of their constitution that they made the least progress on because when you're fighting a war for extermination, recycling isn't right, job right. one. Sure, sure. Yeah. There's a lot of other priorities. <laughs> but this place sounds incredibly yeah. fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Uh, progressive in so many ways yeah. uh yeah this is this is wild to me uh, i mean to and include I, I could, ecology in in your yeah. actual constitution yeah. is uh when, quite something when we're yeah. battling for people to even acknowledge that climate change is a a, a real thing yeah we're, we're, we're still having like is it just bad if we kill all the whales i mean they're mm-hmm. kind of dicks Hoard mm-hmm. the water which and I do sell it. Let's is make a, a profit. Quote from our constitution yeah. Oh, yeah. it is a quote the whales are dicks yeah which yeah, yeah. yeah. what Thomas Jefferson's anti-whale agenda uh, is a, well, just a, well, it hasn't aged well. You know, it, it hasn't. Yeah. It does not look good for Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, it's the one. The one problem with Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, the one problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. Otherwise, this is hatred of whales. Yep. Yeah. 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 Did mm-hmm. nothing. Nothing else there. <laughs> nothing else going on with that guy. <laughs> okay. Um. So one of the people I met in Genoir was a German woman. Um. Very German. Very heavily tattooed. Um, seemed to be, I think, I, I would guess in her late 30s, early 40s. Um, and she spoke what sounded to me at least like fluent uh, Kormaji Kurdish as well as as pretty good English. Um, and she had volunteered to live there uh, and had been living there pretty much since the beginning and was clearly like one of the people helping to organize it. And yet looking at Genoir, kind of the the cynical asshole in me wanted to pick it apart because it was very small. You know, yeah. it's not a big village. You're talking a couple of dozen people with all the kids and stuff in total. And that that's the kind of thing that you could look at and be like, well, maybe this is just like a Potemkin village purely for show. And it's it, it certainly doesn't seem that significant when you're talking about, you know, there's four million people in Rojava. Uh, we're talking about a war that's killed hundreds of thousands. And, you know, in the context of a global authoritarian resurgence that's like – still threatening to 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 kill us all um but even kind of with all of that in mind and like looking at the small scale of it it still felt um remarkable to me um the energy there was was something special and yeah. i think the audacity of what they were going for there um was humbling uh it 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 really impressed me I, we talked to a number of women there um uh, one woman who had like she had a a tattoo on her arm of flowers, which struck me because you don't see a lot of tattoos in that part of the world. Although as I went on through Ojava, I actually encountered, there's a huge tattoo culture that's taken off there just in the last Hmm. couple of years. But her husband was, um, she, she told us that her husband was an alcoholic, uh, and she reported him to the women's councils or the women's houses, which are these buildings that they set up in every town and city in Rojava where women can come and get help if they need it. Wow. Um, so she reported him to the women's councils, and they suggested that she leave and move to Genoir, um, which she had done with her kids. Um, and so she was like, learned they were farming. They grew a significant amount of food, really tasty cucumbers. Um, and Not so, so like, that that's what she was doing Not that you hear about cucumbers that often, I'll say that. 
interject. No, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tasty cucumber they, is not something I associate. Anyway. They actually did, like, the. I went to a couple of farms. The agriculture there's really good, really, like, better tasting cucumbers than I've ever had. And I don't I don't like cantaloupe. It's garbage fruit. Yeah, absolutely. But their cantaloupe was fucking delicious. It yeah. was, like, nothing I'd ever eaten before. And they had these, one of the things they were doing with these farms, you know, one of which was small and one of which was medium-sized, I would say, like, capable of growing, you know, truckfuls of food. Um, 25 acres and six big hoop houses. Um, and it was, they were trying to do like all organic um, uh, uh, fertilizers and stuff because the, the Rojava's traditionally, it's like the Kansas of Syria. It's like the breadbasket. It grows a shitload of food. Um, and the regime had just been pumping in fertilizers and pesticides for years to try to maximize production. And people there would say that, like, it really decreased the quality mm -hmm. of the food and the flavor of the food um, and was also bad for the soil. So a big part of what they were doing over there was soil reclamation. That was part of what they were doing in Genoa, part of what they were doing at this um, – I went to another – a women's farming commune um, that was a separate thing. So there, there, there are a few things like this where it's all or majority women engaging in some large undertaking. It was really interesting to see. And uh, Jinmar itself, like, consisted of – there were a couple of Kurdish women. There was obviously that German lady. There were Arabs. There were Yazidis. It, it, it was really um, a very polyglot sort of culture. And that was really impressive to see, especially since, like, one of the criticisms that I repeatedly heard about Rojava before going there was that it was really just, like, a Kurdish supremacist project. And I can mm -hmm. say pretty conclusively – I didn't see any fucking evidence of that. And I talked to a lot of, of Arabs and, and Assyrians and Turkmen. Yeah. That was going to be my question. So it's not just – I mean it's not just Kurdish people mm -mm. that are living there. This is no a mixture. But I mean I, primarily – it, it, the Kurds were the f like start of it, the core of it, and right. part of that's just because the Kurds are really fucking good fighters. Yeah. Um, and they've been working. They've been wanting a place that – yeah, can be. I mean, they're the, landless. They don't have any a place. They're yeah, and they're 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 um they've been organized politically yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, um, it was really uh, it was really interesting. One of the things as I was leaving, um, I looked back at the gate to Genoir, and so the, it had the name Genoir printed mm -hmm. in um in in English characters on the uh, like uh, on the gate, and one side of it said. Jin and one side of it said war. Um, and uh, I expressed to Chabat that that struck me particularly because it's kind of like a, a bit of a, a, a like it, obviously the, the literal translation is women's land, but kind of reading it in English, a mix of English and Kurdish is women's war. Um, yeah. is what a lot of the women there were talked to me about is that like we see this as a we see the struggle for equality is essentially kind of a military undertaking mm -hmm. um, and that's the way we're proceeding with it yeah it was really interesting to me um I, you know I could go through a bunch of stuff I, I it's one of those things it's like when, when the full series comes out it will be um, probably like six to eight episodes yeah. it's uh, this is um, fascinating to me. And it's just like such a, you know, I've ever said this, expressed this a few times. It's just uh, really challenging my conceptions of what life is like over there. And, you know, we get just these broad stroke images and, and pictures of, of, of who these people are. Um, and it's nothing, nothing to do with this. Nothing yeah, at all. It's an important portrait to. All right. Do you have a lot of contact uh, with people over there? Yeah, yeah, I've been in contact with a few of my friends over there. It's a little bit, um, 
erratic, shall we say, yeah. just because uh, there's a lot going on. Um, but I, what I hear is very worrying. Now, yeah. uh, it, it's not like you know, a lot of people have died. Um, it's not a situation where at this point the SDF isn't helpless against the, the Turkish advance. Um, so one of the things we saw when we were there, I was sometimes just within a couple hundred feet of the Turkish border. There's this gigantic wall, huge stone wall looming over you through huge sections of the trip there. So it was always in everyone's mind. Yeah. And there were while we were there, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, made numerous statements about wanting to destroy the YPG, wanting to like yeah. kill all the terrorists over there. So there were like numerous days where like suddenly security would be heightened and like we'd all walk around knowing, well, okay, the Turks might invade today. So <laughs> like, I, I have a, a question. Maybe it's yeah. a dumb one, but we uh, mulled over it a little bit last week on even more news. What are nations? What are nations? Okay, Go. Uh, no, so I understand Erdogan having issues with Kurdish within Turkey and what's been going on with terrorist organizations there, which they consider to be, but versus going into Syria right now. Is it because Rojava and the organization feels like a threat to him? I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Now, this is a very complicated question. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do my best to explain it. The, the surfaced and simplest answer yeah. is that the PKK are seen as, and not entirely without right, a terrorist group in Turkey, and have yes. definitely carried out attacks like that. I would say one of one of the issues that we have when discussing this is like people hear terrorists now and they think ISIS or Al Qaeda, right. where like their only goal is to kill innocent people. They're more like the IRA was back yes. in the day, where there's individual actions they take that you that are deplorable and horrible, and targeting of civilians is never justified. But they're not just trying to kill people; they're fighting a struggle for independence. Exactly. And they have there's a lot of logical arguments, and they can point to atrocities by the other side. Yes. it's that sort of struggle. Yes. So the PKK is a group that has carried out and continues to carry out attacks on Turkey. When we were there, like the day that we landed in Iraq, because we had to cross over to Syria from Iraq, um, the Turkish ambassador to Kurdistan was murdered uh, in Erbil, which is normally a pretty safe city, by a couple of PKK guys. And it was the kind of thing like nobody knew who did it, but also everybody knew who right. did it. Um, like there was not a, not a doubt in anyone's head that it was the PKK. But that's separate from um, SDF. It's But there, I know that there's separate. ties, like, but... Yeah. There were ties. It was much more tied earlier on. So okay. earlier on, the YPG and the YPGJ were basically just rebranded PKK. That's certainly no longer the case. And for one thing, most of the people making up those organizations have never been to Turkey. We're not alive to take part in any of the PKK's main struggles. Um, they were Syrian civilians until the, the revolution happened when they were 14 or 15, and then they joined up to fight ISIS or whatever. Um, so... That's uh, uh, it, it, there's it's there's not a zero connection to them, but also like you know one of the things you can point out while the PKK has continued their guerrilla war against the Turks, it's not like they're firing javelin missiles on Turkish mm -hmm. Leopold tanks inside southern Turkey. Like they they've been smart about it. They right. haven't been just like well let's take all of our U.S. guns and immediately use them to go attack Turks in <laughs> Turkey. Um, like they're not idiots. Um, so Erdogan's justification for the invasion is that. Um, and I think it's one that a lot of people who don't know much about the situation can see as understandable because it's like, oh, they're terrorists like ISIS. ISIS bad, so Turkey should get to fuck right. with these guys. It goes back much deeper than that. One of the bigger issues is that Turkey has a long and horrific history of repressing the Kurdish yes. people, including banning the speaking of the language and the teaching of it in schools. I guess this is kind of um, what I was assuming. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And there's there's a saying in uh, Turkey that there's no such thing as Kurds. They're just mountain Turks who lost their language, um, I think is one of the, 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 the phrases used. Mm. Um, and there was, I think in 2015, um, there was an uprising in southern Turkey by the Kurdish population, specifically by uh, a bunch of young Kurdish uh, uh, militants um, with an organization called the YDGH, Yedegahash. Um, and they got massacred, and the cities they were in got pounded into fucking concrete, and huge, it, almost no one reported on it, there were almost no reporters there, but it was catastrophic crime. And so Erdogan sees not just the PKK as a threat, but he sees the idea of an organized Kurdish state based along that's, revolutionary militant lines as a threat. That's, he can yes. deal okay. with the Iraqi Kurds, because they're fundamentally... Well, they're- more mainstream, more capitalist. Yeah. They're not. Uh, they're willing to work with him. The 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 Syrian Kurds are not. Well, and yeah, never would and have. they've got yeah. this ideology, and they're building something yeah. there, and it's close to their land border, and so yeah. that right inherently feels like a yeah. threat. And here's this opportunity to go in, um, and yeah, mix wipe it rooted, out, but, rooted in racism, yeah. but also the political project is a, um, a yeah yeah, to, and also the fact that you know Turkey controlled. Syria up until yeah. about a century or so ago. So Erdogan is definitely, I think in kind of the same way that Vladimir Putin, there's some desire on his part to like reconstitute the geographical so, like yeah. scope of the Soviet Union. I think there's some of that with Erdogan as well. That's, I wanted to talk a bit about Russia. So we also have been seeing reports uh, that now uh, Vladimir Putin, Russia is deploying troops to help yep. keep uh, the advancing, the Syrian government and the Turkish forces Turkish forces there keep them keep the peace I guess kind of fill yes. in this vacuum again left by America wanted so to one of the uh yeah yeah sorry no no I was just kind of generally lobbing that out there <laughs> to to yeah. hear your thoughts because like I understand that on the surface level but I'm sure you've got a lot more information yeah. that can help us um understand it a bit more no, I mean, that's essentially accurate, and I, I think it's like a, a, a mark of what a clusterfuck this decision has been outside of its immoral con- like connotations, outside just what a bad idea it was. You had a situation where there was not war in Rojava. There yeah. was not fighting. There were occasional ISIS sleeper cell attacks, but it was very safe. I never felt um, you know, like I was in serious danger walking around in the cities at night or whatever. Right, and you've been uh, in were, so many places where you have felt that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a very safe place. It, there was not active fighting. Um, and it, the only thing that was required to maintain that situation was 200 U.S. Sport special forces guys chilling out on bases and the knowledge that if anyone bombed them, it would be right. a thing. And now that that's been removed, the situation where there was not active fighting has turned into what is essentially a war between Russia, Turkey, the Syrian government, and this autonomous region. Within a week... Like, Within a week, it's an unspeakable clusterfuck with huge implications, um, and it's just so dumb that oh, none right. of this needed to happen. Well, right, <laughs> and it's, it creates a situation where, like, now any any solution or anything that we do will make it even worse. Yeah, like as opposed to staying there. Now that we've left, it's created all these other tensions that getting involved yeah. in is even more complicated. I I don't know what could even be done at this point. Like I, I guess right. I, I'm I'm always in support of like a no fly zone being established, but like now that's so much messier of an endeavor. Well, we had one over Rojava, um, and it worked. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's so, well. It's so I mean, much now we're more, traitors. Yeah. We can't be trusted. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this no, has implications no. around the world. Uh, yeah, it, it just speaks to who we are and who President Trump is and where how reliable we are. 
Um, but even if and we were to undo this, like right now, they hate us. Every, <laughs> like, like they can't know, trust us. I, I'm not sure. They never trusted us. Okay, they, that's they were fair. I will say they're individual Americans, individual soldiers that um, they absolutely trusted. Um, the American government, they're not fair. dumb people. They read history books. Right, they why know would anybody Ameri- actually trust, <laughs> like, trust But the I mean, American- like, right now, nothing that we do. Um- I don't know that I agree with that. I do think if we could, now, obviously, because Russia's moving in, because the Syrian government's yeah. moving in, because there's Turkish troops, like, I don't know how you would that it would be very a dicey maneuver to try to reinsert American troops. That said, I know for a fact they would prefer to be working with mm-hmm. us than the Russians and okay. the Syrian government. Right. And and there was a, a widespread nobody I met who I felt like had a really nuanced understanding of the international situation. None of them thought the US was going to stay. Yeah. Everyone right. thought Turkey was going to invade and we watched them building thousands of miles of tunnels all around the entirety of Rojava, 24 meters down into the ground. Um, these, these incredibly deep and complicated tunnel systems where they were storing munitions so, and so that they could transfer populations and fighters all around the region without the Turks being able to bomb them. Wow. And a lot of that, a lot of those defenses they had to give up because one of the things that was really fucking shitty that Trump did is um, he got the Kurd, he got the, the SDF to agree to a... Um, uh, a, re- a withdrawal from some sections of their line with Turkey yeah. um, as part of an agreement for like a safety zone. And they did with the understanding that the U.S. would be staying. And then once they'd given up their first frontline defenses, mm-hmm. we we're like, ah, fuck you. Yeah. Wasn't that like a month ago or something yeah. like very recently? Yeah. Also, uh, I've been reading a lot that there are like approximately 50 nuclear weapons that yeah, there we sure had are. stored in the area. <laughs> and now Turkey just has them. Uh, well, <laughs> no, 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 no. We, I think it's more that we have bases in Turkey, right. like in Serlik. Yeah, but like, we have we bases like, everywhere. But yeah. yeah. Well, I just have we read just from a like, couple people, a couple people, a couple places describing them now as Erdogan's hostages. Mm. Well, th- that's sort of okay. So this is one of the big reasons why you know one of one of the <laughs> one of the questions that um I found myself asking a lot and asking with my colleagues over there was like. Why the fuck does Turkey get to get away with all this yeah. shit? And the answer is the air basin in Serlik is a huge part of it. Um, now, that's uh, an American air base, um, and it is critical to our operations in the Middle East. Um, another reason for this is that, of course, Turkey is a NATO nation, and they're kind of holding down NATO's flank. So it's uh, – <sighs> I'm not saying there's nothing that could be done. I think there's a shitload that could be done against Erdogan. But nothing is being done because everyone is scared of the implications and scared of upsetting the apple cart even right. more. Well, all um, I guess all the 28 EU union members uh, are now not going to sell arms to Turkey or whatever, even though. That's great. They great. got plenty of fucking guns. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yeah, that's that's what's being done. Um, right. Yeah. All the All the sanctions and stuff. It's like. They want to do this, so you're you knew just like, that they were going to do this. Yeah, you, we everybody knew that this was going to happen. I don't know. Like it's frustrating because I think one possible everyone's worried about the genocide, and obviously I'm worried. Like a lot of people have died, um, and that's terrible. Um, but I worry even more because I think it's more likely. Um, I don't think I don't think Turkey could possibly take the whole region or even a sizable chunk yeah. of what they've claimed that they want to take for a number of reasons. Well, the Turks have a powerful air force and good artillery. 
Um, they don't have a very good military. It's well-equipped, but it's not good fighters. Um, whereas the SDF is filled with like veteran guerrillas who are particularly expert at using a kind of weapon system called an AGTM, um, a wire-guided missile, um, which uh, turns advanced tanks into uh, fireworks. So I, especially when you consider like the fact that the Russians and the Syrian Arab army and its air force are moving in to support them, I don't think Turkey is going to be able to actually take most of what they want to take. Maybe I'll be wrong about that. But I do think that the fact that the forces of the autonomous region have had to call in backup from that particular side means there's a good chance it's the end of this revolutionary experiment and the start of their absorption back into the most brutal dictatorship on the planet. Um, And I understand uh, some of the people I've talked to will say like, look, Assad's terrible. We know that. But Erdogan's worse for us. You know, Erdogan may not have killed as many people, but as a Kurd, he's worse for us. And so because we still are one of the dominant powers in this group, that's who we're going to worry about the most. Um, And I can't say they're wrong. I've never had to make a decision like that. Um, It breaks my heart that the decision's being made because it's so fucking unnecessary. It is really heartbreaking. Um, This whole thing is just... So it's going to be the worst year ever for a lot of vulnerable people in a region of the world where things seem to be getting better uh, as recently as this August. But you know where it's not going to be the worst year ever, Katie and Where? Tell me. (laughs) In the products and services that support this program. Once again, I should have seen that coming. It's going to be the best year Mm -hmm. ever for them. It's going to be the, yeah, the very best year ever. Because we are going to move a lot of whatever it is we sell. Products and services. Shakers, yeah. Movers and shakers. Products and services. services. Yeah, yeah. Some of those, uh, some of those, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have a good joke. I was going to, I was going to make a, make like a condom joke or something, but then I couldn't think of one in time. Couldn't, I just think condoms couldn't are funny. come up with one. There it is. God damn it, Cody. There, there we go. All right. All right. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Oh my gosh, I've bought them all. He sure did. Snapped them up. I, I'm excited about having bought them. Yeah, I bet you, I bet you are. I put in the promo code. Excited. I received the I received the gifts. See how fast our products and services ship. Wow. Um, you know what you know what I'm excited about most? What? Is when we inevitably get to the point where the entire episode is just one long ad plug, but yeah. with no ads. We just never get there. We're trying That's, to we're constantly like, yeah. We're building to it. I think like our numbers a marathon will skyrocket. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's what the people want. The pivot is an ad plug that never starts. Welcome to the ad transition, the show that is constantly transitioning to an ad that never comes. But first, how are you doing today? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Republicans here in America and what they're more like Republicans. The Republicans. Well, yeah, um, I think I solved the political debate. Oh, you there. did it. Yeah. What was what was yours, Cody? The, I didn't want to steal your joke that you oh, put the on this doc. The Republicans, mm, mm. uh, Republicans, Republicans. <laughs> yeah, um, they're pissed. Yeah, they are. Uh, they it's are the pissed. first time uh, in recent memory where they've actually stood up, kind of, yeah. uh, a little, kind a little, of. a little bit to the president, although still managing to not to... say his name. Yeah, it's very fascinating. They're standing up to what's happening, but not to him specifically. Right? They're like, "Oh, yeah. there's a, uh, you know, a lot of tweets of like, oh, there's, you know, this is ethnic cleansing. Oh, we've betrayed our allies. A lot of this language, and they never arrive at. And it was that decision was made by. Yeah, well, why who? is that happening? Like who? Unilaterally <laughs> like by somebody after a phone yeah. call uh, without it's, it's consulting anybody. Yeah, uh, like uh, Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham obviously come to mind specifically, but just so many of like, oh, I can't believe we've done this. Who who did it? What are you talking about? Yeah. Why don't you just, it, just elaborate? Say, just say his name. Just say his name once. But they don't want yeah. to because they know that he's gonna attack them. He'll uh, hit them on Twitter. Yeah, he'll like he'll he'll drag he'll drag them on Twitter so they don't they don't want to do it. Um, oh, but what it is a time interesting to be alive. that this is like the one time they're yeah. uh, they're actually. Not happy about something he's done, yeah, and vocal about it because I can't imagine they're happy all, all the time. I mean, they're in a real no. dicey situation now. What with the impeachment stuff going on, obviously not related to this, but like, <laughs> well, they're they're constantly because I, I think there are like several different factions of this where you have like the Republican reaction, um, but then you also have the conservative pundit reaction, right? And then yeah. you have, I guess, what I would call like. The grifter proto fascist reaction, like yes. uh, like a Jack Posobiec type. Sure. Uh, yeah, like Jack Posobiec, who has attacked uh, the Kurds as supporting Antifa. Exactly. Um, right. Mainly on the strength <laughs> of literally two guys who like spray painted some some Antifa signs. Yeah, on an stuff Antifa years flag ago. or something yeah. like that. And yeah, it's like, yeah. first of all, Jack, you know the fa in that is ISIS, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like that's the fa that they they're right. anti. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's just this weird like. Like, 
supporting ISIS to own the libs mentality. Um, yeah. But juxtaposed with before this happened, where he was very supportive of the Kurds and mm-hmm. has all these all these tweets mentioning like, oh, the Kurds are so brave and X and Y. But as soon as uh, Dear Leader does this reversal, they switch gears. So fascinating. Um, it's very fascinating how that works mm-hmm. out uh, every single time. <laughs> it's fucking shocking to me that the bravest reaction from the right wing uh, and most direct attack on the president as a result of this came from Pat fucking Robertson. <laughs> like, oh, man. What a... Yeah. He named the president. Yeah. I didn't see that. What a who. Yeah, yeah. he said President Trump is has lost or will, is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven as I a did result see of that. his. Oh, the mandate. Yeah, yeah. The mandate yeah. I was distracted by the mandate of heaven part. And it's, it, it's fucking wild because Alex Jones seized on that as evidence that Pat Robertson is part of a Chinese communist conspiracy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. It's so good. That is delicious. Oh, it's they it's can't. one little, little bit of brightness. Yeah. They can't help themselves. That's amazing. No. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. Alex Jones triggered. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> Side note: I saw an Infowars sticker in a random remote road in Maui. Oh it yeah, you did. A sobering yeah, reminder of the real world. <laughs> they're, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're in paradise, and there it was, smacked up on a. Yeah. No, no. Remember, actually, what's going on <laughs> with this beautiful yeah. vista behind you? It was like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Try to escape that. Um, but it's just interesting um, that there is this. It's this weird spectrum where, yeah, you got these grifty proto-fascists, and then you got the Republicans actually speaking out, and then you have, like, a lot of the Fox News figures not really taking a stance other than these Republicans are caring too much about what's happening in Syria and on the Syrian border and not enough about our own border where we need the wall. Like, they keep, like, bringing it back to this, like, America first build the wall talking point, which is weird. Um, Oh, yeah. What did the president tweet? Like today. Oh, did he tweet something today? Or maybe it wasn't today, but it was. Oh, I'm sure he tweeted something today, Cody. He <laughs> Does he, is he a tweeter? Somebody. Does he do yeah. that? Yeah, he tweeted. Uh, some people want the United States to protect the 7,000 mile away border of Syria presided over by, uh... by Bashar al-Assad, our enemy. At the same time, Syria and whoever they chose to help want naturally to protect the Kurds. I would much rather focus on our southern border, which abuts. Hmm. Either that's my typo or his, and is part of the United <laughs> States of America. And by the way, numbers are way down, and the wall is being built. I bet it is. You America know what's first. ironic about that statement is the chunk of the Syrian border that touched Iraq and large pieces of Turkey was not run by Bashar al-Assad right. up until a couple of days ago. Mm. Right. <laughs> As we've just discussed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did not run into any Syrian Arab army soldiers on the border. Um, Are you suggesting he doesn't know what he's talking about? Absolutely. I'm suggesting that because of his actions, Bashar al-Assad now controls way more border than he mm. did before. Yeah. You're suggesting that earlier he tweeted, uh, Im- he tried to tweet impeach the press, but he forgot the extra S, so it says impeach the prez. <laughs> that was good. That was that that that's that's one of the little bits of levity we get Ooh, out of this. That's a good one. Careening, good flaming dumpster truck. Did yeah. he delete it? Um, I think so. Oh, I don't dang care. It. Um, dang it. It's, uh, yeah, it's just this mentality of you see in the the seven seven thousand miles away thing. Uh, it's the Earlier last week, he was talking about how uh, they didn't help us in the Civil War. Right. They, they know, weren't there at D Day. They didn't. That's that's fair. The the the, the <laughs> right. They weren't they weren't at Normandy uh, with us. Um, but yeah. Even though, like, yeah, they were involved in World War Two. Guy. Yeah. There were uh, there were tons of Kurdish 
soldiers who fought alongside. Unbelievable, him, but like stuff. Yeah, yeah, just this idea of like, no, Very we're not going to do that. We're not going to do this. It's America first. We're not going to get involved. We can't do endless wars. In the same breath as saying that, by the way, and get this, we're going to sell all of our mercenary army to Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And anyone mm -hmm. else who wants to be the right. highest bidder, he's like proudly announcing this. Yeah. Um, while also saying we don't do we don't want to do wars anymore. It's wild. We don't want to do wars that aren't profit making endeavors. Right. Profit making. Yeah. Right. This and this is one of the things that's like frustrating to me about like how how the Iraq War gets spun with like its focus on the oil and stuff, and it's like. There was a profit motive in the Iraq War, but it was on behalf of a lot of private corporations. The U.S. government didn't didn't get a lot of money out of that. Sure. that like we, right. <laughs> we 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 fucking spent all of our money on that shit, um, and that's the issue a guy like Trump has. Trump would actually be totally down with a war for oil because he specifically well, said he thinks that Iraq should have to give us their oil. Like right. if, if that was literally what it was about, was just going in there and stealing the oil and leaving, he would yeah. have been on board. Well, yeah. so there's literally a, said he's literally that. said that. There's a there. He used to have a vlog uh, where he would vlog he, from he his sure office. Um, he sure did. Unbelievable. Real beautiful stuff. Uh, they they have since been deleted. I think they got deleted right before the election. Yeah, in 2016. but Cody saved them all. Oh, I got them all. But there are a few videos where he talks about this, and uh, in regards to Libya specifically, where he says uh, we should go into Libya, we should help these people for humanitarian reasons, and then when we're done, we go to them. And then we say, give us half of your oil. <laughs> so like he's literally said before, like years it's ago, so just like, yeah, yeah we're going to do humanitarian uh, things with our military if we can get paid in oil. He's mm -hmm. like laid it out. Like just that's the definition how he, of humanitarian. Right. Uh, I like humanitarian things that uh, Profit re me. require being paid with oil afterwards. But he, and he's saying like, maybe they'll give us 75% of their oil, whatever. Um, but he's like literally laid, laid out like, this is how he thinks. He would absolutely, mm -hmm. of course, do a war for oil. Um, and He just doesn't want to do a war for protecting 4 million people. Right. Um, yeah. But if they're willing to give us uh, all their stuff when after we've saved them, then yeah. he would. Then, then maybe he would. Then maybe he definitely would. Until um, their stuff runs out. Then? Yeah. So just like all the, yeah. all this surprise uh, that you see from all these people, even like Trump fans who are like, I can't believe he's doing this and this. Yeah, he's talked about this for years. Um, and like obviously the Republicans are uh, craven uh, ghouls yeah. who uh, know better and they're just playing the game of being surprised by his actions. So what is it that we are doing? We've announced <laughs> – because we all know when this all started – a week ago, a week and a half ago, he yeah. sent that bananas tweet about <laughs> his great and unmatched wisdom, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. His if they do anything that I disagree with, I will I'll decimate, decimate their economy them. like I, I have before. Yeah. Like he has before. <laughs> yeah. So many questions about that. But has he decimated their economy? Have they done something that in his mind has crossed a line <laughs> so that he would decimate yeah, their what's economy. That be? I mean, there's some pretty shocking videos coming out about. There sure are. are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, did you yeah. see? I'm sure you did. I'm sure, Ivanka will get very upset and talk to her dad about it. Yeah, those it. those um uh, those mercenaries mercen gunning down a bunch of uh, medical workers. Yeah, yeah, they um, pulled out a bunch of people from the cars, and one of them was a yeah. female Kurdish politician, and they yep. murdered them. Made Raped videos. Murdered, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we've got some sanctions coming in, right? Mm -hmm. I will 
whisper that to those corpses. I'm sure they'll be happy Let to hear it. Don't worry, are on the way. they're being sanctioned. Well, the one thing, yeah. like when uh, regimes are uh, doing a genocide that they've been wanting to do for a long time, just itching the thing, for that well, genocide. Well, the thing, the thing that stops them is steel tariffs. That makes them. That gives them pause. Oh no! Mm -hmm. It's just like a weird like approach where you you basically give them the green light to do this thing, and then you're like, it'll cost you a little more. The price tags are uh, up a little more, but like that's not going to stop them. You know that skyscraper? It's going to be twenty percent more expensive. You still get to do the genocide, but it's going to be. You still get to do the genocide. A little more. Still a little little pricier. And like some of the sanctions are about uh, the leadership specifically, because norm like normally sanctions are like. They hurt the people of the nation mm-hmm. and not the people who are in charge of the nation. No. Um, but uh, so they're they're targeting uh, Erdogan and some of uh, his folks a little bit. But it's just like, yeah, you're you're letting them do it. And then you're like, well, but. Well, and this is a part of a lot of this all boils down to like uh, we've been very harsh on Trump, um, justifiably so, because. He took a situation that was not great, but uh, had some hope in it and turned it into one that's just a complete clusterfuck. But the reason all of this got this bad um, was years of liberal politicians who did not want to get involved in something complicated. Because among other things, they didn't think they could sell it to the American people. You can trace a lot of this back to Libya. Um, A lot of people... it's so complicated. So uh, in with Libya, the Obama administration attempted to do something very humanitarian and brave and decent and necessary, and they succeeded. And if you look at the amount of people who have died fighting in Libya since 2011, it's about 50,000 or so. Compare that to the more than half a million who've died fighting the Syrian civil war. Even if you equate for like the population differences, a lot less people yeah. have died in Libya just because we stopped Gaddafi from bombing the shit out of Benghazi. Um, but you know the four people, the four Americans who died in Benghazi, that has been was turned into a multiple years long political issue to try to kill Hillary Clinton. And the fact that things didn't work out perfectly in Libya and it didn't, they didn't instantly go like, all right, I guess we're a functioning democracy right. suddenly. Like we're doing that, that, slaves that, now. Well, they, but they were before right. too. That's another yeah. one of like but. you fucking like. There's plenty of evidence of it under Gaddafi in the '90s, um, and in fact that it peaked in the mid '90s. But the, like the, it's, it's very. Uh, people who are misinformed and who and it's a mix of sides because there's a lot of people on the left who will like decry Libya as this like tragedy because we got rid of Qaddafi a man who kept it stable and it's like you don't know shit about Qaddafi he killed like 5,000 people in a stadium one time just fucking because he's a piece of shit like you don't fucking know what you're talking about you don't know anything about the region you read one bullshit lefty blog that claimed Qaddafi was a socialist and so you think Mm -hmm. that it was US imperialism like oh and so like because of this because you've got this mix of like assholes on the right who just won't let a democratic president have done anything good. If they do something good, you've got to attack them for it. And then that thing, humanitarian intervention, becomes terrible. And then you have other people who are like, well, if the U.S. did it, it has to be bad because we're always evil. So I have to find reasons why this is bad. And so one of the things that results in, because guys like Barack Obama and most of his, his ideological simpaticos and kind of the center left are fundamentally not brave. 
Um, so they just stop doing shit. So when Erdogan makes a massive power grab in Turkey and starts imprisoning his enemies after a very suspicious coup, nobody does anything about this happening in a NATO nation. So when Bashar al-Assad starts firing chemical weapons on his own people, nobody grounds his fucking planes. So when Russia invades Ukraine, nobody does anything but slaps a couple of sanctions on them because they're scared about what might happen if they actually take any kind of effective stances. And because people keep not doing anything, the situation keeps getting worse, the authoritarians keep grabbing more, and the liberty of peoples around the globe is squeezed and squeezed and choked a little bit more every day. And there's a lot of individual authoritarian assholes like President Trump who you can blame for aspects of it, but the fundamental reason it was allowed to happen is a failure of courage from the educated liberal section of our society who just didn't have the fucking gorm to do what needed to be done because it was scary. Wow. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Never yeah, heard well, the word gorm before, gorm, yeah. but I picked it up. We also yeah, have a good one. Uh, good one. residual <laughs> effects of like Iraq where, yeah. you, you know, we know sure. that that's absolutely, just absolutely. a bunch of lies got us into yeah. uh, a disaster. And it's there's the uh, political, yeah. I mean, afraid of the backlash here of people getting involved in of us getting involved in in situations and not knowing how it's going to play out, but there's this also, and knowing like, what's our responsibility. Yeah, knowing just the relationship of uh, of uh, America and war and the military industrial complex and people that make money from it, and the, so intentions are always going to be questioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and you know the fucking what what did the what did a lot of like the liberal mainstay politicians who are still active and were active in two thousand three do when the Iraq War came around? They voted for they it, voted right? For it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then some of them wished they hadn't. A um, few years later, a few a years. few years later. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Boo. Boo. Universal boo. <laughs> Solved it. Fixed it. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Buy bolt cutters. Um, How come? Some Not only stuff. bolt cutters. Buy food and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Buy food and stuff. Um, buy water because we yeah. have to buy water. We have to buy water. You gotta pay money yeah. for water. Yeah, you gotta pay money yeah, for that water. Makes that makes sense. sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and how, buy the products and services that support. No, you know, like the one thing that, that we edition. look for uh, in the in the universe uh, to look for life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if we charge everybody for it? Sounds like I can make a lot of money. Yeah, it does. Mm, and I, that sounds like a flawless situation. Mm-hmm. Good for people. What if we package huge amounts of that water in tiny bottles made out of a substance that kills the ocean? Ooh, I love that. You've, you've taken yeah, I, my that's a brilliant a, idea and you've made it even better. <laughs> this is how we do it. Spitballing ideas. Well- this has been the last episode of the worst year ever. We're <laughs> off to make billions of dollars. We already uh, are. We're billionaires, the baby. Best year every year. Vote now. Republican. <laughs> From now on, gets better yeah. all the time. Yeah, my opinion on the capital gains checks tax has changed instantly. Yeah, wow. It's funny <laughs> how that works. You know, I didn't yeah. see it before, but now I do. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I go hang out with George W. Bush at a fucking baseball, baseball game? game? Yeah, that sounds fun. He is a good guy. He's sweet. He paints now. He paints, he paints now. now. Before, you know, murder. But now, yeah. painting. What does he paint? Who does People he paint? change, Cody. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, This has been really fascinating. I'm really glad that we did this. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You know and what? thank all of you for listening.
Yeah, guys, thank you so much. We're welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for all of us here at The Worst Year Ever. Until next week when we talk about probably Andrew Yang. So that'll be, probably that'll true. be more upbeat. That's actually the episode we recorded before this yeah. one. So I'm very bummed out on it because my friends were getting bombed and I didn't yeah. know if they were yeah, okay. So now you've got um, some context when you bit. hear it. We recorded yeah. that last week. We pushed it for next week. It's fine. It'll keep. It's you, fine. It'll keep, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not it, going Andrew bad Yang ain't going nowhere. He ain't going nowhere. We got a debate the tonight. Debates tonight. We'll uh, see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. More like debut. All right. It is Ooh, honestly that was more a like debut. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm and now we've gotten our political commentary in. Good. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks, Robert, again. And I guess thanks, Cody. Oh. Oh. You're welcome, I guess. See you next week. And you know who else we should thank? Who? products and services our products and services I should have known that I should have seen where you were going mm-hmm. with that thanks products and services you're thanks, great thanks products and services everything's so dumb everything's so dumb and it's gonna get dumber great I tried yes Daniel lovely Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.